Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime podcast. I'm Ashwarya, your host for this episode, and I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Instagram at Desi Crime and show us all the love you can. Like, follow, share us on your stories and tell us exactly why you love the podcast. Imagine living in a beautiful, peaceful city in India. You're either a student or you've retired or you're a family living each day to its fullest. Life is going well. You have friends, a city you call home, you go to the movies on the weekends, maybe a family lunch every now and then. Until one day, you find the movie halls empty, people in their houses before sundown, terror in the eyes of every passerby and fear in the hearts of thousands, furious to lock their doors and windows before going to bed. This was what happened to the beautiful and peaceful city of Pune in 1976 because of a murderous rampage that did not seem to end. This is the story of four men behind that horrifying murderous rampage. This is the story of the Joshi Abhyankar serial murders. Back in 2020, during COVID, Ashwarya, when we started the podcast, and we were, you know, uh-huh. we were uh, novice true crime aficionados, and we're figuring <laughs> our way through the Hall of Fame of Indian true crime. Um, one name that popped up recurrently was Joshi Abhyankar, and yes. you know, I, I remember, I think at the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021, I thought this is one of the episodes I want to cover, and when I went digging. I didn't think there was enough information out there for an entire case. So I know sparse mm-hmm. details about this case. It's been requested a bajillion times, bajillion times, yeah. right? Uh, but I didn't know there was enough for a six thousand word script. Damn, have you there written is. a long script? So <laughs> I'm interested to know all the details you've come across. Oh, there's a lot of details and incredibly gory details and terrifying, gut-wrenching details. So there's more than enough that should bring you guys to this episode. And for all the peaceful families and individuals you can talk about, 1976 wasn't necessarily too peaceful a time. It was a dark and no. tumultuous time in India's history. It was smack dab in the middle of the emergency imposed by India's then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, and it's a sort of a facet of. Indian history. I don't think that's taught yeah. to us enough, nor is it talked about enough. Juxtaposed equally with Indira Gandhi's um, positive legacy, which I think isn't taught either. But I think this this page of Indian history sort of was torn out of our history books, and um, I don't know where it went. Yeah, no, I agree. There's quite a lot that I find lacking, at least in our high school history curriculums, and it's frankly a shame. And so, I think I'll give you all a little refresher, not to make this a history lesson at all. But the emergency was this almost two-year-long period between 1975 and 1977, when Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared a state of emergency in the country. The rationale was that there were internal disturbances within the country, and there was also a danger of external threats as well. 
it gave Indira Gandhi the ability to swiftly pass laws without going through the usual channels of governance. There was incredibly high incarceration rates, mass censorship of the press, a suspension of civil liberties, the infamous mass vasectomy campaign by Sanjay Gandhi, and so much more. Basically, to speak our generation's language, the country was a hot mess for a hot minute. I actually read this fantastic old book called How Democratic is the American Constitution. And it actually was written a long time ago, but at the time, it didn't even call India proper democracy because of the emergency. But in this obviously shaky historical context, life was still going on for millions of Indians across the country. Which brings us to our story. Life was going on for thousands of people in Pune. And sure, there was small, petty crime like any other city in the world, but it was a safe city to be in. Speaking of petty crimes, Ishwarya, do you want yes, um, another, another edition <laughs> of Desi Crime with Aryan Part 2? Absolutely. So, um, as you listeners know, and I got your very loving texts about my safety, we're all safe. The first crime ensued in Rome when my friend's gold chain was stolen. Guess what happened to us on the train in Pisa, in the town of the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa? On the train, two guys stole my buddy's iPhone. (laughs) And so... Um, in three days, two things stolen and I know petty crime all too well now. And trust me, it's not fun. It's not fun at all. Thankfully for all of our Pune residents, Aran, Pune wasn't quite like that, even in the midst of the emergency. (laughs) (laughs) Your Rome and Pisa experience sound horrid. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But you see what I mean by Pune though, the Indian Express actually described the city as laid back, culture rich and a pensioner's paradise, kind of like a 1970s Chandigarh, (laughs) which is why when Sundar Hegre, a family man and hotel owner came back from work on the 15th of January 1976 to find his college going son Prakash not in the house, he probably wasn't terribly worried at first. Prakash had friends, he was a grown kid, Pune had a nightlife and there was no reason to raise alarm bells just yet. That was until Sundar woke up the next morning to realise Prakash didn't come home the entire night. Now there were no phones, no pagers even, no way to contact someone if they weren't immediately next to you or had one of those obnoxious cord phones. So Sundar and his wife had no idea what to do. They were panicking. It was about to be 24 hours since they had last seen their son. They knew they had to contact the police, but before they could spring into action, they realized there was a little note left in their mailbox. It was clearly in Prakash's handwriting and for a split second, a different kind of worry hit Sundar and his wife. In the letter, Prakash talked about how he had left home voluntarily and wanted his parents to give him some money. He said he had chosen to go away. This wasn't a temporary thing. He wanted to be gone for good. No explanation, no reason, just a goodbye forever note while asking for some money. For a second there, the situation went from did something bad happen to Prakash to why did Prakash leave this way? He was a smart kid, a caring son. He was an art student at the local Abhinav Kala Mahavidyalaya, located right across from his father's Vishwa Hotel. He seemed happy with his life. As Sundar Hegre stared at this letter, wondering why his son had left, a small detail in this letter hit him like a truck, which immediately made him realize the letter was a lie. His son hadn't left voluntarily. 
you see and this is the kind of detail only a parent or a very close loved one can pick up on the letter was signed prakash at the bottom but prakash wasn't called prakash at home he was affectionately called devdas aran is like me sending my parents a letter signed ashwarya i feel like they would actually freak out yeah and for those of you that don't know everyone who knows me personally calls me isha and so i 100% understand what prakash's father picked up on a name i've interchangeably used on the podcast multiple times to our yeah. listeners confusion <laughs> but yeah her home name to say is isha but her formal name is ashwarya and i tend to dabble between the two Exactly and there have been full episodes where Aran's called me Ishan I'm like hmm I think there's something mm. wrong with this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so I completely get what he picked up on. And the family took this note to the police but this was too little to definitively show that Prakash hadn't actually just run away. The police gave Prakash's disappearance or voluntary run a little bit of attention but eventually they gave up and moved on to bigger cases. Prakash's parents waited and waited and waited but their son never returned. Yet the feeling that something much more sinister was behind this letter never really left Sundar and his wife. January eventually turned to August and Pune maintained its calm and composure even in the midst of the emergency. But 4 hours away from Pune in the city of Kolhapur a local businessman was attacked inside his residence by four men wielding knives. There's not much information on who this man was. All we know is that the men failed to successfully attack and steal from the man and eventually escaped. Assuming this to be an attempted robbery, the case of this man never went ahead either. When you say the case didn't go ahead, did it not go ahead as an attempted robbery or it didn't go ahead as a case at all because it was a minor crime? It didn't go ahead as a case at all because it was a minor crime. Jesus. But Aran whoever this businessman was knew that his assailants four dangerous men capable of serious crime were roaming the streets freely yet again Pune continued to maintain its calm and composure unaware that something sinister was brewing in its underbelly that would within the next 2 months shock the core of the city and the entire country Two months after four men had tried to force their way into the businessman's house and attack him, and seven months after Prakash Hegde went missing, Pune police were called to the home of a family living in the Vijayanagar colony of Pune. Someone had found dead bodies inside the house. When the police arrived, being led by Assistant Commissioner of Police Madhusudan Hulyalkar, what they saw inside seemed too gruesome to be true in a city like Pune. There were three bodies inside. One of Usha Joshi, another of her husband, businessman Achyut Joshi, and the last one of their teenage son Anand Joshi. All three of the bodies had pieces of cloth stuffed in their mouths, hands and legs tied together, and a blue nylon rope tied to their necks. They had died of asphyxiation due to strangulation. What was weird, however, was a peculiar smell inside the couple's house. It was a unique smelling and a very strong perfume. Some cops said it was actually a pleasant smell while others found it repugnant, but where the smell came from remained a mystery. Can I can I answer the mystery? I think I think I know the answer. Not yet. No, 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 I know, give, I know give us the a hint word. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It sure. was the perfume aunties wear before a kitty party. It is so strong. <laughs> It, I think oh, you actually had the answer. No, no, that I'm giving you the actual answer. That is the actual answer. The most <laughs> repugnant, overstimulating, pleasant smell 
is aunties is before an a kitty party. Yes, before a kitty that party. That actually makes perfect is. sense. Thank I've you. actually never been to a kitty party, so I have no idea what aunties smell like at kitty parties. But your knowledge on I this topic. My nanny used to organize sort of Kanpur's kitty parties and I oh, used to no. frequent them as a kid. Fondly. Fellow fellow kitty party goers. Yes. Hoot hoot in the comments. Who please. needs who needs nightclubs when you have kitty parties? You know? <laughs> Right, so exactly, Auntie Kitty Party smell was inside this house. <laughs> what was most odd, however, Aran, wasn't the rope around the necks or the smell. It was the fact that one of the three bodies was completely naked. Our instinct might be to assume it was Usha, the only female victim, but it wasn't. Mm. It was the couple's teenage son. Why him? The answer to this question puzzled the cops and the city for very long. Was it some kind of serial killer signature? Was it a strategic mm. move to distract from the real motive of the crime? Nobody really knew. But the crime did seem like a robbery at the offset. The house was ransacked with the couple's cupboards opened and money missing. Other articles like Usha Joshi's Mangal Sutra and Achut's watch were missing too. Ishara, for those of our listeners who don't know, Mangal Sutra is this auspicious thread, I think, usually made of gold or some um, expensive metal. That's uh, mm-hmm. It's like a necklace tied around the bride. Yeah, and it's the husband that ties it around the bride's neck and married women typically wear them in mm-hmm. Indian families. And so that was stolen and also Atriyat's watch. It was clear that this wasn't the work of just one criminal. This had to be some kind of gang or a group to overpower a family of three in this manner with nobody nearby hearing anything would have needed more people. But this is exactly where the trail of clues ended. There were no fingerprints in the house, no shoe prints, no traces of blood, absolutely nothing. And it was also the 1970s. So imagine forensic technology 50 years, half a century behind us today. Now, even though there weren't a lot of clues on this crime scene, the eerie nature of the crime, the weird smell, the naked body, a murder of three, all made this news spread like wildfire in the city. Pressure on the police was mounting, but to many, this might have still, even at this point, been a one-off case of a robbery gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. The police were trying their hardest to reach the perpetrators, consolidating information with other police departments from cities close by and using search dogs from their department. But they kept coming up short. It seemed like the men had just fallen from the sky, committed this seemingly perfect murder and then vanished. A month passed and while the police were still on their toes with this now high-profile investigation, a woman was about to come face to face with death and somehow escape. This woman was Yashumati Bafna. She ran crying to the police station in a panic, wanting to speak with an investigator. To the Pune police, she tells the harrowing story of how four men had rang her bell and then forcefully tried to enter her house and hold her captive in an attempt to rob and murder her. But she and the two male house helps she had in the house at that time had fought the four men, scaring them away. But she was still scared. She didn't want them to return angrier or hurt someone else next. She tells the police she also noticed something peculiar. They kept repeating the word boss over and over again in their interaction and it stood out to her. She noticed that above everything else in her panicked, frazzled state. Ashwarya, other than the fact that uh, the four men, or at least the three of the four, were reiterating boss over and over again, did Mm -hmm. the house helps and Bafna happen to see their faces? Was was their face, you know, covered 
with masks? Um, would they be identified uh, by Bafna and the two house helps? So again, Arun, like you mentioned in the beginning, this is a very old case. So it's these minute details that are actually missing. But mm. I assume since they go so far as to kill their victims, they actually don't have their faces covered. For whatever reason, perhaps right. Bath Manor House Helps couldn't in their like really quick interaction, perhaps remember the face of these men. Now, the police, thankfully this time, file a complaint for Bafna's case. Let's go. But they didn't at all link it either to the Joshi murders Jesus. or the disappearance of Prakash Hegde. In fact, the fact that they had the Joshi murder to solve only probably made them more likely to view Yashomati Bafna's case as just a failed attempt at a robbery mm. they didn't have time to give attention to. As the police dismiss Bafna, they forego a key clue in their investigation. Four men. There were four men roaming the streets of Pune that had tried to attack this woman inside her own home for what seemed like a robbery. This was less than 30 days after the police had found three dead bodies of a family killed for the sake of a robbery by more than one person. But they missed it. And so, just a week after Bafna was attacked, the city was struck with terror once again. On the 1st of December 1976, the Pune police got called to the scene of a crime inside a sprawling bungalow called the Smriti Bungalow on Bhandarkar Road. This bungalow will go on to become a haunting landmark for the city, with visitors and artists all coming to pay homage to the brutal murders that once took place inside it. On this night, on the 1st of December, this bungalow had inside it the Abhyankars, a prominent family in Pune's more elite and intellectual circles. On the night of the murder, inside was prominent Sanskrit scholar Kashinath Shastri Abhyankar, who was 88 years old, his wife Indrabai, who was 76 years old, their house help Sakubai Vag, who was 60 years old, their granddaughter Drui, who was 20 years old, and their grandson Dhananjay, who was just 19. If it was hard to match the eerie and gruesome sight of the Joshi murders, the Abhyankar murders at the very least rivaled it. The police, led by ACP Madhusudan Hulyalkar, found all five members of the family inside, dead. They all had their hands and legs tied together, balls of cloth stuffed in their mouth, a blue nylon rope tied around their necks, and one family member naked. This time, it was the Abhyankar's 20-year-old granddaughter, Jui. The house was ransacked again, with cupboards flung open and drawers emptied out. Yet again, money and jewellery was reportedly missing from inside the house. But what stood out as the most eerie was the same smell as the Joshi house. That same weird smell that some found pleasant and others found repugnant. That strong perfume. Yeah, no, I'm not cracking that joke again. It took right? way it's too serious. And yes. Yeah, it's eerie and yeah, I, I take back my joke. Aran, it was this smell and all of the other details like a naked body and the blue nylon rope that made it clear to all of Pune that there was a very real possibility they had a gang of serial killers on the loose. They seemed to display the same modus operandi, the same blue nylon rope, they leave behind the same one naked body, the same peculiar smell. But just like the Joshi murders, the Abhyankar murders had no clues. None of the family members were raped, so there was no DNA to be found like that. There were no fingerprints or shoe prints or scents to be picked up by the dogs other than the strong perfume. The murderers had yet again seemingly committed the perfect crime. 
and we still don't know why some uh, victims were stripped naked right that no, still seems to be no a random idea. affair yeah because it would have made sense if they were um, sense purely because of logic not because it's empathetic by any means but if there was rape involved or, or necrophilia right. but there is none of that absolutely so what's none of that. the no. point of tearing somebody's clothes we'll find out <laughs> But now Aryan after this murder Pune was terrified. Remember how I began this episode with the image of a terrified city with fear in the eyes of every passerby? That was what Pune had turned into. People stopped leaving their homes after sunset. They stopped responding to doorbells without confirming who was on the other side. They started locking every door and window with caution. They started roaming the streets with knives. The city was on edge. Movie halls started to run empty and restaurants saw lower than ever traffic in the evenings. Police patrolling on the streets ramped up with cars being stopped and checked at every turn, but even this wasn't enough. The people were so fearful that Pune police actually called the CRPF or the Central wow. Reserve Police Force over to Pune to help patrol the streets alongside the Pune police. If India was in a state of national emergency, Pune was in a state of emergency of its own. Yet, none of this stopped another dead body from being reported to the police. This one actually seemed different from the Joshi and Abhyankar murders. There was no house where the body was found, no cloth in the mouth, no naked body. It was just one body of a young man found tied to a metal ladder on the edge of the Mulla Mutha River in Pune. The body had boulders tied to its feet in an attempt to weigh it down, but it had managed to come up to the surface anyway. So it was obviously a murder. Even though this did not seem like the same murder as the previous ones, the police took it seriously for a few reasons. Firstly, it was still a serious crime in a terrified and once peaceful city. Obviously. Secondly, the police understood that due to their heightened surveillance and people's extra vigilance, it would have been hard for the murderers to commit the exact same murders again. Mm. So this might have been the work of the exact same criminals who now just didn't have the ability to force their way into a house and murder an entire family without getting caught. Lastly, while this body wasn't found exactly the way the others were, there was one glaring similarity that jumped out at the police inspectors the same blue nylon rope tied around the body's neck now this might have been a coincidence but as the lead inspector a highly distinguished officer named manikra damame stared at the body lying in front of him he then noticed something else about this blue nylon rope the knot used to tie it around the neck Now have you ever noticed that everyone ties a knot differently <laughs> I have had literal discussions with people about how I think that their shoelace knot is weird and they think mine is Are you a double knot person or a single knot person A single knot But like when you go running don't you prefer a double knot just in case it opens or when you jump rope My single knot serves me fine <laughs> Well, I think you're not running and jumping rope enough, Ashwara. If it serves you fine. <laughs> See, this is exactly what I mean. Everyone exactly. has a different, weird way of tying their shoelaces, and even if it's the same knot in the end, everyone gets to that knot differently. To knot or to not to knot? That is the question, Ashwara. Oh my god! <laughs> I had to. I had to. Please. This impulsive urge to say these bad one-liners will someday get me, but I had to, and. <laughs> Let's not edit it out. We'll we'll keep this one. 
This is so bad. All right. Sidestepping that horrendous joke, Arya. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly this not or not to not realization that hit the cops when they saw the exact same knot as the Joshi murders and the Habyankar murders tied around the neck of this body as well. And so the police notified ACP Madhusudan Hulyalkar about the knot, who then began an investigation into this murder as well. From inside the pocket of the dead man's clothes, the police found an ID with a wallet, an ID belonging to college student Anil Gokhale from the Abhinav Kala Mahavidyalaya. That rings a bell. Uh huh. I don't know. I think you just used it. What is the Abhinav Kala Mahavidyalaya? It was the university that our first victim, the missing Prakash Hegde, went to, and it was uh, also where, right across the street from, his father's hotel was located. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So these are two victims, both mm. of which went to the Abhinav yeah. Kala Mahavidyalaya. Anyway, the knots on the ropes were all compared to each other using crime scene photos, and indeed, Inspector Dharma's observation was spot on. Anil Gokhale's post-mortem report details the cause of his death to be the same as the others, asphyxiation due to strangulation by the rope. It was also revealed that he had died within the last 24 hours. This was important to the police because it being a new murder meant that the criminals were still out there. They hadn't gone into hiding or run off to their ancestral villages. They knew they needed to act fast at their closest shot at catching these cold-blooded murderers, and where else to start than at the common link that Aryan just noticed—the Abhinav Kala Mahavidyalaya. The police reach there and gather all people familiar with Anil Gokhale, asking them about the last time they saw him and with whom. And interestingly, one name came forward: Rajendra Jakal. A number of students mentioned seeing Anil Gokhale sitting with Rajendra Jakal on Jakal's bike and being driven away. Now, Rajendra Jakal was also a student at the university, and the police actually ended up finding him at the gate. Within minutes, they were back at the police station with Jakal, questioning him on his whereabouts. Jakal mentioned to the police that he had spent the previous few days, one of which was the day of Anil Gokhale's murder, with his three friends. Dilip Sutar, <laughs> Shantaram Kanhoji Jagpat, and Munawar Harun Shah. So that's three plus one. Three plus one. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not coming to any conclusions, but you know, but sounds yes. us. But Aryan Jakal, as every other supposed criminal, had a story to tell the police. He tells the police that he had been with his friends. They had all done random things throughout the day, and so the police called these three men to the police station to help corroborate the story that Jakal had told them. Now, Madhusudan Hulyalkar was investigating not one but four possible murder suspects, but having forgotten the story of Yashomati Bafna and never having arrived at the number four before, the number slipped by, and so he began with the basics, asking each of the men what they had been doing the past few days, and each of them said they were together. But the moment it came down to describing what these men had been doing these past few days, not one of their stories matched that of the other. Holyalkar knew he was onto something, but first he needed just one of the men to trust him and rat the others out. So he began with Jakal by offering a universal sign of brotherhood: a cigarette. <laughs> he not only offered him a cigarette, he lit his cigarette with his own lighter. Put his hand on Jakal's shoulder 
and asked him to truthfully reveal whatever he knew about the murder of Anil Gokhale. Now, Jakal didn't give the police the name of the murderers just yet, but he still said something that shocked the police. He told them that he believed that there was a connection between the murder of Anil Gokhale and the murder of Prakash Hegre. Prakash Hegre, by this point, maybe I'm wrong, but but the police thus far only knows he disappeared, right? Like nobody knows Prakash Hegre died. Um, so why would he? Unless I mean he's giving up a detail. <laughs> he is giving up a detail. When Jakal mentioned Prakash Hegre, the police went back over to look over the Hegre case file and realized very quickly that this case was never assumed to be more than a missing persons case. No news channel, no police officer, nobody ever mentioned Prakash Hegre dying because literally nobody knew where he went. His body was never found. This is why Jakal's comment immediately sparked a fire in the mind of Hulyalkar, who was now even more sure than before that he had possibly just found his murderous gang. Yet, even though the men had inconsistent stories, they didn't break and stuck to having spent time together just doing random things, and the police were forced to let them go. But Hulyalkar put plain cloth inspectors on constant surveillance of the four men, which then revealed another clue. In one conversation the men were having together, the inspector heard them mention boss and talk about how the boss will handle the police. The moment Hulyalkar learns of this detail, Yashomati Bafna's case rings a bell in his mind. The case of the woman who had barely escaped an attack by four men. In her old case file, Bafna clearly refers to having heard the word boss over and over again in the middle of her attack. The police now double down and go back to the university to question other students. And this time, one student, a young man named Satish Ghore, looked scared and timid, broke down in the middle of being questioned. He tells the police that the four men, Rajendra Jakal, Dilip Sutar, Shantaram Jagpat and Munawar Shah, all had a hand in the murders. He says he knows this because the men had bragged about the murders to him on multiple occasions, but also that these four men weren't the only ones. They had one more member, another young student named Suhash Chandak. So, the police bring in Suhash Chandak and play a classic trick on him. They tell him they have proof against him that ties him to the murders along with these four men, but if he was willing to assist the police by giving information on the other four, he would become a state-protected witness. Straight out of a Hollywood true crime classic. I mean, that's Uh just a good old trick. Absolutely. It's my second favorite after Good Cop, Bad Cop. Yes, Good Cop, Bad Cop takes the cake. I you know, it works. It's, it, it, you know, 100% it's works. It's cliched because it works. Good something, bad something always works. Good parent, bad parent, good friend, bad friend, like it all works. No, I think now that's a generalization. I don't <laughs> really. Yeah, I think I think good parent, good parent this is the oh, way to go. Oops, but okay. never mind. <laughs> But so the police play this trick on Chandak and a scared Chandak rather quickly agrees and rats to the police some key information, all of which will go on to end the murder spree in Pune. He tells them the location of Prakash Hegre's body as well as how he was killed but maintains he had nothing to do with the other murders. On the basis of all of this testimony, just seven days after the murder of Anil Gokhale, on the 30th of March 1977, the police swiftly arrest the four men. The men dodged the questions for a while, but after hours of persistent interrogation and realizing they had no way out, 
they all spoke they spoke not only of the 10 murders they committed prakash hegre the joshis the abhyankars and anil gokhale but they also spoke of their own story and how they came to become friends and turn into serial killers the men had met at the university and become best friends slowly over time but each of them was the least bit interested in actually studying they were all notorious around college for being drunkards smokers womanizers ill-mannered and disrespectful they had gotten in trouble with the university administration on multiple occasions for this behavior they were also desperate for money they all came from poor families with broken households and significantly less financial support than a lot of their other classmates like prakash hegre to get the money they first started by stealing the cycles and motorbikes parked outside their university and selling those for parts but eventually they wanted to hit it big they wanted one burglary big enough to sustain them this is when they remembered prakash prakash's father had a hotel and a restaurant that he owned a restaurant even the four men and a lot of other college kids used to visit because it was right behind the university the men assumed prakash to have a lot of money and decided to kidnap him now the men wanted to kill prakash but prakash wasn't a delinquent like them he would have never hung out with these four men alone which is why the men used suhash chandak to get prakash to an isolated location where an abandoned shed stood the men had previously used this shed to sit and get drunk in the evenings it was inside this shed that the men held prakash hostage made him write the letter and eventually killed him now this is where suhash chandak panicked he thought this was going to be a kidnapping for ransom not a cold blooded murder So Chandak ran away vowing to the men to never tell anyone of this crime. The men then put this body inside a metal drum which they filled up with rocks and threw into a river that actually ran from right across his father's hotel. Little did Sundar Hegde know that his son's body was so close to him. But the group messed up. Prakash's father never gave in to the demand for money in the letter. He knew something was off about it and the men never got what they hoped for. After this they changed their tactic and instead chose to break into houses and hold family members hostage there that way there was no need for a ransom note this is how they killed the joshis and the abhyankars and what they were trying to achieve with that one businessman from kolhapur and yashomati bafna after revealing the details of the hegre murder the men also revealed the details of the joshi murder on the evening of their deaths the couple usha and achyut joshi were enjoying just a regular night at home if you remember it was the 31st of october 1976 the couple had a teenage son anand joshi who was not at home that evening so as the couple were enjoying their regular night at home together within seconds their evening turned into anyone's worst nightmare as four men with knives entered their house and held them captive The men stuffed pieces of cloth inside the couple's mouth and tied their hands and legs together. While the men were doing this, the couple's teenage son Anand actually returned back home and walked in on his parents being held like this. The group then captured Anand too, first killing his parents in front of his eyes. Then they made him strip naked and asked him to lead them to all the money and jewelry in the house, which a terrified Anand did. They then killed Anand the same way they killed his parents with cloth stuffed in his mouth and a blue nylon rope around his neck. They sprayed the crime scene with their perfume and ran away. Now, why the naked body? Why ask Anand to strip at all? 
the men's explanation was that they would have the last surviving member strip because the last surviving member was the one helping them find the valuables in the home. This meant because the last surviving member was alive for longer, there was a chance that this member escaped. But because they were naked, they would be ashamed and perhaps more apprehensive to just be running out on the street like that and asking for help. Now, I don't know if this works or not. Maybe it does a little purely subconsciously, but be assured if my parents had been killed in front of my eyes and I was about to die too, I'd run out of the house naked so fast. But maybe it does work. I don't know. This was their logic. Why the perfume? That was a tactical move to confuse the police dogs. They knew they could wear all the gloves in the world and commit the perfect murder by leaving no evidence behind, but they could not stop biology. Their presence in the crime scenes would have meant their smell was left behind and they needed to fix that. And so, the perfume. Ashwara, you know, two of the most powerful uh, emotions that drive human beings are fear and shame. And I think... you know in a scenario where your parents are killed of course mm-hmm. fear is the triumphant emotion right. but if you're naked of course shame is the triumphant emotion i don't mm-hmm. think it's as simple an equation of uh, you know fear outweighs shame it's shame is so deeply ingrained in our psyche that mm. perhaps you know the idea that our neighbors would see us naked if we run out might stop the ploy as you know it seems facetious it seems like oh that is that is like a kid came mm-hmm. up with it but but i don't know it might work like of course it's tough to be you cannot imagine yourself in a situation like that but part of me goes maybe shame wins um and as for the perfume i mean that's just that's just foresighted on part of these four mm-hmm. killers who are not like professional killers no, they were they're college no kids yeah no and i don't think the tactic of having the last surviving member be naked is at all silly i think it's obviously very well thought out and it seems like there could be like a whole psychology paper on just this topic alone yeah. it's very interesting but i just personally feel like fear has to trump everything else in this moment i don't know that's just my opinion mm. when i put myself in those shoes i can just imagine not caring about anything else mm. so aryan this is how they killed the joshis but because they didn't find enough at the joshi house they tried again with yashomati wafna and failed then they tried again with habiyankars but that time they succeeded they didn't even break into any of these houses they didn't even break into the habiyankar house they simply rang their house doorbell and walked in with knives i've said this to aryan before you all but we open doors so quickly after hearing a bell or a knock 95% of the time we have no idea who's behind the door true If someone decides to like ring our doorbell and kill us there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop them. Mm. In the Abhyankar house their granddaughter Jui was the last surviving member and hence found naked. Jui would have watched her grandparents her own younger brother and their family help all die in front of her eyes but maybe for a second she thought she would have survived if she helped them or maybe she had heard of the Joshi murder and knew what was going to happen to her too she knew that those were her last moments alive all of their bodies were found when Jui and Dhananjay's parents came to pick the two up from their grandparents home only to find their life shattered within seconds After this murder the city of Pune had fundamentally changed and so the men couldn't kill how they previously had and so their last murder that of Anil Gokhale was purely a matter of chance 
they found Anil alone at a movie theater in Pune and asked if he needed a ride back home. Anil knew these men; they were his older brother's classmates, and so he agreed. But the men take him back to their shed, the shed where they kill Prakash Hegre and murder Gokhale the very same way. They steal whatever little money he had on him and then dumped his body into the local river, tying him to the metal staircase with boulders to his feet. This murder finally brought the men down and ended the reign of terror that had plagued Pune for almost a year. The people felt relief, but they also felt anger and agitation. Their safe haven was disturbed and tainted forever. which is why when the four were arrested charged and sent to prison to wait for a trial the country hoped for quick justice and quick justice they got shamrao ji samanth a very successful and senior criminal lawyer acted as the prosecutor against the men the case began on the 15th of may 1978 in the pune sessions court and lasted just a little more than 4 months wow On the 28th of September 1978 the four men were sentenced to death by judge Vaman Narayan Bapat and the country but Pune especially rejoiced but the men weren't done yet they actually had the audacity to request a presidential pardon but of course the president politely declined but the men weren't done they made another request to the supreme court asking for death by the electric chair instead of by hanging their argument was and try not to die of the irony here that death by hanging is unnecessarily Jesus painful Christ. these were men who had killed people by strangling them using a nylon rope and to them death by hanging was painful many believe however that the men were just trying to buy time And so doctors associations and experts from all over the country were contacted by the lawyers and the verdict was unanimous. There is nothing inherently more painful about hanging to death compared to an electric chair. If anything, an electric chair is more painful and inhumane, which is probably why it's outlawed almost everywhere in the world. The time was up for the four men and they were finally hanged 7 years after they went on their murdering rampage at the Yerwada Central Jail on the 27th of November 1983. Even till their last day they displayed little remorse for the lives they had taken. Life moved on for Pune and for the country as the men were put to death and the national emergency lifted. In 2020 the Smriti house where the Abhyankar family was killed almost 50 years ago was demolished and a new structure now stands there trying to mask the true story of what happened on that piece of land Inspector Madhusudan Hulyalkar the man behind cracking this case was commended for a job well done and actually went on to gain a PhD in criminal psychology He went on to assist other police departments across the country profile their killers and burglars mind hunter style. Four families had entire generations wiped out within minutes for no fault of their own. The only advice they'd probably give you if they were alive would be this. Before you rush to open a door on hearing your bell ring, be careful of who's on the other side.